Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting guest, you know, a guest that uh, definitely is going to tell us a thing or two about his business and also he recently uh, is announcing and has announced as well that uh, he's raised one of the largest Series A financings, which I think is going to be interesting to touch a little bit on and, and to hear what went behind it. But I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Simon Taylor. Welcome to the show. Alejandro, it's great to be here. Real privilege. So originally born in London, where they make fish and chips and also where it rains quite a bit, but uh, raised in Boston. So tell us about life growing up. Yeah, absolutely. You know, my father was uh, was uh, an executive at Wang Laboratories, if you remember the old Wang company in the 80s. And uh, he, we immigrated from um, the United Kingdom uh, to Boston when I was about four years old. And uh, yeah, he was a tech guy. So I kind of grew up in the tech scene in Boston in the 80s and 90s, uh, seeing, you know, how great Boston could be for technology when all the sort of right pieces are in the puzzle. So then tell us about uh, university, because obviously you went to Northwestern. And then after that, you know what? What happened after that? <laughs> so Northeastern. So, so I went to Northeastern, Northeastern right here in Boston. But, you know, you know, after that, um, I ended up actually in your neck of the woods, Alejandro, in Spain, in Madrid, Spain, at Instituto Empresa, i.e. business school, uh, one of the you know top 10 business schools in the world and an amazing school focused very much on global entrepreneurship. Learned a ton about networking, about how to set up a company. And frankly, I think a lot of the, uh, a lot of the learnings from my time in Spain are probably what are putting me in the seat today. So, so very grateful to the folks at IE. That's amazing. Well, I great school, uh, great family that, that that started, you know, as well the university. Now it, it seems like yesterday, about many years ago, and you're making me now starting to miss as well my my beloved Spain, especially the tapas. Eh? I oh, mean, come on! That's amazing. So, so then after after you did your masters there, what happened? You know, it was interesting, actually, backing up a little bit, you know, when I was in my mid 20s, I uh, was working at Forrester Research in Boston, and I decided that I wanted to sort of go global, uh, raised a little bit of seed capital, I moved to Prague in the Czech Republic, um, and I set up a business uh, trying to identify hot IT companies that I could then bring to the US. Now, at 23 years old, God knows what I was thinking. 
but you know, I went all over the map. I went to Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania, Romania, and I, I ended up identifying a company uh, in Slovenia that was incredibly strong when it came to outsourcing. So I, you know, brought them over to the U.S., set up their U.S. operations, you know, got them to profitability. And it was at that point that I actually took a step back and decided to go to Spain and get my MBA. Um, after that, I, uh, you know, met back up with some of the folks who I'd been working with at that previous company. And we started talking about, you know, the way that um, Eastern European technologists were building amazing technology, but they weren't really monetizing it. They were working as outsourcing providers, service companies, but they weren't really, you know, creating their own IP and then bringing it to, to market in the U.S. Um, so, you know, was, with a couple of colleagues, we decided to do that and we put together a team and ultimately uh, built a, a monitoring tool company that was doing, you know, application performance monitoring and things like that, connecting Citrix and Microsoft, Microsoft System Center. Um, brought that to about 2,000 customers, and then I sold that business to Citrix uh, in 2015. You know, and it was at that point that we, uh, the sort of the rest is history, as they say. That's when we started to launch Haiku. So then let's talk about Haiku. So, so what was the that process or, or that incubation, you know, like from the minute that the idea pops into your radar to the moment where you finally say, hey, this, this is interesting. You know, we, we better do something about this and, and launch the business. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it was great, actually. My now CTO, Gordon Gorevsky, who I always credit as being the real genius behind the operation, he and I were actually at a conference in Las Vegas, a tech conference for Microsoft. And we ended up sitting down at this table at the uh, Gordon Ramsay restaurant there. And we had this idea, which was very simple. We said, you know, if you think about, he was a technologist who had been focused on data protection, backup and recovery for 35 years. And he said, it drives me crazy, Simon. All of the backup vendors are building data protection that looks like the cockpit of a plane. Thousands of knobs, thousands of dials, incredibly difficult to manage. And then I turn on my iPhone, I slide the button across, and all of my data is backed up. Why can't we bring that simplicity to the enterprise? And that was the simple concept. Right when he said that, the streamers came down from the ceiling of this restaurant, and they announced that we were the 1,000th customer. And so... <laughs> We're in the middle of this sort of, you know, deep business discussion when the Gordon Ramsay people come running out, they bring us a cake, they say, congratulations, you're the number one, the 1,000th customer in the restaurant. And I said, my God, if this isn't destiny, I don't know what is. Uh, and it was really that that created the origin for Haiku, which is now a multi-cloud backup as a service business with over 2,000 customers in 75 countries around the world. That's amazing. You know, and what is most amazing is that you know, you guys did, you know, a, one pretty big Series A of a round. So, so I guess, uh, how much capital have you guys raised today? To back up just a second, I think the interesting thing here is we're two and a half years into the business. Okay. Uh, we had an incredible private investor who supported us from, you know, from seed all the way to A round. Um, so we've never raised institutional capital. So by the time we actually went out to raise, we already had established ourselves in the market. We'd grown really fast. We had a 450% year over year growth last year. And so today, our A round is actually $87.5 million. Uh, and that's led by Bain Capital Ventures, along with A Crew Capital, uh, both out of Silicon Valley, with Bain obviously headquartered in Boston. That's amazing. Uh, but obviously, typically at a Series A, people are looking to show product market fit, validation. I mean, it seems that, you know, at this point, you guys were 
right on. You know, revenues were like uh, probably very decent uh, and at a different level, uh, probably like beyond the type of expectations that institutional investors are looking at a Series A. So you probably blow their minds with the with the output that you were doing. You know, in terms of uh, of execution. I couldn't agree more. You know, Alejandro, it's funny actually. When you're a private company that's never taken money, all the VCs figure out who you are. So we had an enormous amount of inbound interest from companies saying, oh my goodness, here's a company that's growing fast, it's on the radar, but it has no institutional capital. Um, and that was a great position to be in because we got to meet a tremendous number of venture capitalists, PE firms, you know, across the world and you know, specifically in the Valley. Um, I would say that when we met the folks at Bain Capital Ventures, it felt very different. Um, you know, we've got two new board members or that we will be adding in the future, which is Enrique Salem, former CEO of Symantec and now at Bain, as well as Stefan Cohen, uh, who is one of the architects of Turbonomic here in Boston. And, you know, I think I think speaking with them, understanding how well they knew the space and how much they could see our vision and really wanted to help us to execute it. Uh, all of those were really exciting factors in terms of making us to want to hit the go button. Uh, and say yes to this really, you know, outsized A round. That's amazing. Uh, now, in terms of, for example, like like the Series A, I mean, what? Why did you think it was the right time to to raise the Series A at that point? Because it seems that you know you guys were doing pretty well. Uh, maybe like to a point where you didn't really need to go through that uh, heavy due diligence or 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 level of reporting or whatever you call it. Uh, but you know, here you go and you say, okay, you know, let's do it. Let's bring these people in. So, so why, why did you think it was the right time at that point to really do the series A? You know, it's a great question. It's a great question. You, you know, it was a number of factors, but strangely enough, I think COVID really played into it. You know, what had happened was that because of COVID, you know, think of backing up a second, you know, Haiku does three things. We do backup and recovery, automated data migration and disaster recovery as a service. So, you know, we call it backup as a service is kind of an umbrella term, but it's really those three things. And during COVID, everybody started fleeing to the, to the cloud. So we had, just, you know, an enormous influx of business with customers saying, I need a simple self-service, uh, you know, product that will automatically protect my data and get me to the cloud faster. And so we started seeing a lot of that, a real big influx that drove our business, you know, up 450% year over year. And it was at that point that we said, my goodness, you know, we're servicing large governments, you know, large Fed customers, you know, some of the largest, you know, Fortune 50 companies in the United States. We're doing all of this without any funding. Imagine what would happen if we could now hit the gas. Uh, and so I think that sort of brought on this discussion, which was, you know, we've never raised, we've never needed to, you know, in order for us to expedite our path to market and make sure that now as many customers around the world have access to Haiku, you know, we should put some gas in the tank and we should really hit the green button. Um, yeah. And I think that's what led us to, you know, eventually, you know, go, speaking with Bain and, and getting to a deal. So was that like, for example, the 89 million? I mean, it sounds like crazy, like going into a round thinking that you're going to be raising 80, 89 million. I mean, one of the largest Series A's, <laughs> probably the largest that I've heard, you know, in 2021. I mean, is that something that you go into the conversations with already, like knowing that that's going to be the number? Or is that more like, listening, being part of the conversation with those candidates, with those investors. And then as a, as a result of being in that conversation with those investors is something that really comes up as the number that it makes sense to raise. Gosh, that's such a great question. You know, I think it's a mix of both. 
somebody once said to me, an opinion is worth 20 IQ points. And I think that's very true when you're raising. So you absolutely need to know where you want your business to go. You need to know ultimately how much gas you need to put into the tank to get a specific result. But when it comes to you know, how much you actually need to raise for a specific round, a lot of it comes down to the discussions you have with the investors as you move down the line. So you might go into it saying, hey, we think we want this. This is what we want to do with it. In some cases, they might push you lower. In some cases, they might say, you know what? We think you should take more. We actually think that in this situation, the market is poised to accept haiku globally. We want to make sure that you guys can run, run, run. Um, and, and I think what I really liked about the Bain Capital approach was it's a very collaborative discussion. You don't have this sort of you know, boardroom suit and tie meeting where they kind of close the door and then let you know afterwards what's going on. Everything was very open. There was a very direct line of communication. They told us you know, what, what they liked, what they wanted to do, you know, how they were thinking about the business. They asked us where we wanted to be, um, how we saw ourselves growing. And we had a very collaborative discussion around how we could be the most efficient at going to market and really propelling the rocket ship to the moon as quickly as possible. So, you know, very much a joint collaborative discussion there. So, and I think that makes sense. So I guess in terms of business model, especially for the people that are listening to really get it, how do you guys make money at a high queue? Great question. You know, you know, we, like many uh, enterprise technology vendors, started out with perpetual licenses, selling the old license with so a 20% support. And we were forced very quickly to switch to SaaS, to a, to a service model. So, so we did two things. One, we made sure that we architected all of our native integrations, all of our backup services as true SaaS. SaaS meaning that as a deployment model, you can turn it on. Nothing to download, nothing to bring in professional services to integrate. You're literally just going into the cloud, turning on your service, and then the service is doing the rest for you. Um, and in terms of the commercial model behind that, we do it a couple of different ways. But for the public cloud customers, we wanted to make sure that the customer was experiencing Haiku and consuming it in exactly the same way they're consuming the public cloud itself. So it's all about you know, getting rid of the friction. We want it to be easy for customers to buy. So customers typically buy storage through consumption, so they can also buy Haiku through consumption. The more they back up, the more they recover, the more data that we're storing, the more that we can actually go ahead and charge them for. Um, and it's a great model because it's very aligned with the way that they're managing their entire storage when it comes to cloud. And something else I'll point out here is that we never store our customers' data. So, so while we track how much data is being stored in the cloud so we can charge customers for it, we believe that a data protection vendor is there to protect your vendor or your, your data, not own it. So we're not sitting around sort of putting our arms around your data and saying, give this to me. We don't want to make money off your data. What we want to do is make sure we protect your data and then charge you for the service. And the way we do that is just simply by adding um, a coefficient to the amount that it's being consumed and used and charging for that consumption. So then obviously that's where we are today, right? And, and you guys are making a killing. You know, rocket ship is in motion. Uh, I guess imagine you go to sleep tonight, Simon, and you wake up in a world where the vision of Haikyuu is fully realized. What does that world look like? That's a great question. It's a powerful question, actually. You, you, you know, again, going back to that original, you know, vision discussion that we had about why we built Haiku, we wanted to simplify the concept of data protection. To put it another way, you know, when you think about storage, storage used to be kludgy. It was lots of stuff on-prem. Then, then public cloud came out and they simplified it. They made everything a real service. Haiku wants to do exactly the same thing for data protection. 
if you think about it today, your data is your most valuable asset as a company or an organization. So we want to protect it for you, but we want to be able to protect it not just on-prem and not just in the cloud, but anywhere your data sits, whether that's a SaaS model. So whether you're using a SaaS you know, service like Office 365, whether that's in the public cloud like Microsoft Azure or Google Cloud, or whether that's on-prem like a Nutanix or a VMware, et cetera. So, so, so that's today. In the future, what we want to do is we want customers to be able to turn on Haiku's protege platform, literally have it discover their entire environment, natively integrate into every platform they're using, visualize all of their data under a single pane of glass, and let CIOs and VPs of infrastructure in IT departments around the world take back control of their data because it's out of control. There's so much data in so many places right now that people are backing it up and protecting it in a thousand different ways and sometimes none. And so we want to ultimately help them to take back control of their data, protect their data, and also make sure that all of their data protection is natively integrated into the platforms they're using so that we can avoid things like ransomware, criminality, cyber crimes, et cetera. Uh, we believe that Haiku's protege platform could ultimately become the major blockade between the bad guys and your data set. Uh, and I think that's a really, really exciting premise. True backup as a service that covers your entire data estate. And anything, and, and I love that, Simon, anything that the um, that perhaps you can share with the people that are listening and watching in terms of like the scope of the operation so that they get an idea of the size, maybe number of employees or where things are at at the moment? Yeah, you know, you know right now we've got about 200 uh, employees in about seven countries around the world, maybe 10. Um, we've got two large engineering centers in Europe. Uh, we've got an office in Chicago and an office in Boston. We're going to be adding over 100 employees in Boston in the next nine months. So it's a massive ramp up for us, and we're really, really excited about it. And I think, you know, it's important for a couple of reasons. One, you know, with COVID, you know, the market's been hit very hard. For me, as, a, as somebody from Boston, it's very exciting to get to invest in the city I live. Um, you know, hiring people, you know, bringing on new talent, getting to leverage all of the great, you know, technological advancements that Boston has to offer. This is wonderful. I mean, if you love your city, you want to be able to support it. And what better a way to support it than to build a huge team, you know, right in the city you live. I mean, hiring 100 people in nine months, I mean, and 200 people and you just got started with a business. I mean, <laughs> how, how do you how do you think about, you know, I guess a onboarding so many people so fast and then also doing it in a way in which the essence of the culture doesn't get lost? Oh my gosh, two great questions. The first one I'll say is our internal joke is that the harder, the hardest job for this year belongs to our HR director because, you know, onboarding that many people is a massive challenge. You know, obviously we're going to be building out our HR function. We need to make sure we've got great, talented people who are helping with that onboarding process. Um, the second thing we've done is we've started building out what we call Haiku U, Haiku University, uh, which is an end-to-end -end program for onboarding and training every member of the Haiku community. So, so I think that's been very important, you know, making sure that we spent the time, money, and resources to invest in a program specifically to help new employees get onboarded. Because you're absolutely right. Otherwise, you just lose it. You know, they come on board, um, they start to lose the culture, they don't know what the job is. That can really, really be disruptive. So we got ahead of that. We started the Haiku U development process about six months ago. We're about to launch that, you know, in the next couple of months. The, the, to your next point, and I love that question actually about culture. 
Uh, I'm a huge culture buff. I really think the CEO's major job is to you know build the vision of the company, sell the vision of the company, and then bring the culture and make sure it sticks. And I think you know, you know one of the most important things about our culture is what we call our core values. And I think in a lot of companies today, you hear about core values and they almost sound like marketing. Right. For us, our core values are legitimately what makes a great haiku. And the three core values, we call it better with age, and that's A-G-E, authenticity, grit, and empathy. And you know, just to take a second to tell you about those, Alejandro, I mean, I think authenticity is just being who you are. You know, I'm a unique person. You're a unique person. I don't want to have to sit here and have a conversation where we both act like somebody else. Let's be who we are, <laughs> right? I mean, that, that's right. Yeah, sort yeah. of basic, you know, but yeah. we got to do it. Uh, the second is, you know, in a startup environment, we're always for a long time going to be a startup. No matter how much money we raise, we need the grit. We need folks who are fighters who are going to come on board and are really going to just dig in and do the work and be passionate about it. I think that's really important. And the last one, and, and I have to say, I think, again, going back to IE Business School, I, I formed some of these ideas at IE. Uh, the idea of empathic leadership is so important. So, so really putting yourself in other people's shoes. You know, I think that there's so much emphasis these days on being the smartest guy in the room or smartest, smartest lady in the room. But at the end of the day, that doesn't get you anywhere. You're not going to help your customers. Uh, you're not going to help your employees. You're not going to help your partners. If you sit around saying, we know everything, we know best. It's much better to put yourself in someone else's shoes and spend every moment of the day trying to learn, trying to learn how to, how to understand their challenges and then go about trying to fix them. Um, so I think if we can hold on to those three core values and make sure we drive them into everything that we do, then we'll be really successful. I love that. Now, let me tell you this. It's, a, it's typically a question that I ask the guests that come on the show. So if I put you in a time machine and I, and I put you back in time, you know, let's say to 2018, when you're thinking about, you know, how Haiku, like the idea, you know, like maybe launching a business around it. If you could go back in time and give yourself, that younger self, that younger Simon, one piece of advice before launching the business and why, given what you know now, what would that be? Can I give two? Go I've got it. two right off the top. Go All right. It. So from a tactical perspective, Simon, do not ever use perpetual licenses. Go right to subscription because it's going to be a complete waste of time. <laughs> Everybody wants to buy as a subscription. You know, that was a complete waste. But, but, but at a higher level, I think, I think the important thing to do would be to tell my younger self that it's really important to embrace some level of balance. Because what I've realized in the last couple of years is that, you know, when you're creating a startup, it is an all-consuming task. It takes every ounce of your strength, every ounce of your mental energy. Um, and I think, you know, probably when I started, I believed that in order to get the best out of myself, I had to work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. And the risk with that is you're not always going to be able to bring your best self to the game. It's important that you actually do take those moments to go running, you know, get some exercise in, you know, think about the completeness of your own life. Um, and I think that, you know, now that I've started to do that more and sort of added some balance back into the equation, um, I find that I actually make better decisions. And I think the company is happier and healthier for it. I love it. I mean, I think that having that balance definitely contributes to being productive. I mean, if you don't sleep well, you know, you're going to end up with depression or all, whatever that is. So, so I think that there's people like the founder of Reddit, Alexis Ohanian, that is talking about hustle porn and how, you know, people should, you know, stop thinking about and having that mindset. So I'm glad that you touched on that, Simon. So I guess for the people that are listening, 
uh, that want to reach out and they want to say hi uh, to you, what would be the best way for them to do so? You know, you can find me on Twitter at hashtag Simon Haiku, S-I-M-O-N-H-Y-C-U, uh, or, you know, go to www.haiku.com. Amazing. Well, Simon, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It was such a pleasure, Alejandro. Thank you for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.